Good afternoon, listeners, and welcome to the Dogs Program. We are the Dogs, the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools, and we're here to promote and defend public education. Today, we've got something a little bit different for you. All throughout the year, we discuss great state schools, and some of us here at the Dogs are purely state school educated. Today, Sorrel and I are going to be discussing our state school experiences and reflecting on the differences and the similarities of what we experienced growing up going to great state schools, how it felt for us going to state school in our respective eras, what era you're talking about going to school in. I was born in the 70s, so started my schooling in 79 and finished I was the class of 1990. <laughs> oh that's so funny I was born in 1992 <laughs> so you were finishing school and I was being born. <laughs> I started school in the 90s and then I graduated high school in 2010. Wow wow okay now yeah. I feel like a dinosaur. Whereabouts did you go to school? So I went to three different public schools. I went to public primary called Black Rock Primary and I went to two public high schools, one from seven to ten called Mentone Girls Secondary and another one from in 11 and 12 called uh, Sandringham Secondary College and that is just a year 11 and 12 campus. Okay. What about you? Oh, I went to one state school all the way through my schooling, primary school included, and it was called Glenmore State Primary School and then Glenmore State High School. Ah. Glenmore was kind of on the outskirts of Rockhampton. Is that normal for in Queensland for like one school for primary and secondary? I mean, I can only speak to my experience. The campuses were right next to each other. Yeah, so it was kind of on the outskirts of the town. I dare say the town's bigger now, so it might not be so outskirty. It was on the highway heading north to Mackay. During the year when we talk about state schools and we talk about the ICSIA value, when you're going to school, you we don't really think of those things. What would you guess the ICSIA value of, say, your primary school was? So my primary school probably had a higher value and probably still does because although it was a public primary school, the area that it's located in is like quite high socioeconomic area. My two high schools were like very, very, very mixed. The first one I went to was a huge school, like massive. And then the second high school that I went to, Sandringham, I don't know if they still do this, but when I went there, they didn't have like a zone, which is really cool. A catchment area. Yeah. And so obviously that's really unfortunate if you just happen to live in an area that like doesn't have a quote unquote good school. But Sandringham would let people come from any zone. So we had kids coming from like an hour away just because it was a really good school and they, they let them in. It was really cool. Yeah, well, that's the thing about public schools. All comers are welcome and they can't say no. When I look back at my school, our ICSIA value would have been very low. We had a high percentage of Murray kids, many Indigenous kids that I grew up with, but we had kids from all over the world. It was a really mixed bag, our school, but yeah, I dare say the ICSIA value would have been quite low. Our school recognised that part of the community that it was servicing wasn't necessarily capable of 
scraping together the money for uniforms. So it was mm. policy. There was no school uniform. Oh, that's interesting. But there was a dress code. Like we had school colours and a dress code. So for primary school didn't matter so much you're pretty much wearing what your parents are buying you which is fair enough but for high school when you start to express yourself a bit more that's when the dress code came into it so it was things like having to wear covered shoes say if you're in science class or in um, metalwork and woodwork everyone had to do it it was mandatory in grade eight you had to do all the subjects and it was only yeah. in year nine that you got to actually choose electives yeah mine was like that too yeah I think that's a good idea because it really gives you an opportunity to have a little nibble on everything and see which flavour you like best. Definitely. Yeah, so the dress code was interesting because it did develop. Because we were in Queensland, it was very, very hot, so you weren't allowed to wear singlets. Uh-uh. You had to wear T-shirts. If you went outside the shelter shed, we used to call it the sheltered area, it was mandatory to have a hat. You weren't allowed outside the shelter shed without a hat. But one thing that developed while I was at high school, which I thought was very, very savvy of the teachers, was they noticed that kids, being kids, are cruel and will find a way to ostracize or pick on anyone who's different and so one thing that became obvious was once you started to choose your own clothes at high school and develop your own style it became obvious whose parents had money and who didn't because at that point in time mambo shirts had just come out and mambo was a a a t-shirt brand that was all very cool and trendy but it was also very expensive. So a kid wearing a Mambo t-shirt to school would, would show that they had money. Obviously, kids like that, they like to pick on kids who don't have the expensive t-shirts. So if you were wearing a shirt that was from Kmart, they would try to pick on you. It never bothered me because I was wearing stuff from op shops or stuff that I'd made, like because I, was, I sewed my own stuff from a very young age. I love that. That's so cool. But when the teachers noticed this, they brought in a new rule to the dress code and that was there was to be no logos on clothing. Mm. So no logos on any clothing. So that was no logos on hats, T-shirts and shorts or socks. When you look today, it's difficult to buy clothing that doesn't have a logo that doesn't have a label distinctly displayed. Mm. The rule was no labels. So that was a wonderful equaliser because suddenly you could have all of that stuff, but you're not wearing it to school if the label is prominently displayed. Suddenly these rich kids have to buy from Kmart where there's nothing on front of the T-shirt. I thought that was a, a really savvy move on behalf of the teachers because they nipped that problem right in the bud so they noticed that this was happening and so they said we will have none of that here we've got a dress code and that dress code is to allow you to express your individuality it's to allow you to be able to afford to wear clothes to school because not everyone can afford a uniform it's to keep you safe sun safe and science safe but the dress code is not there to give you a chance to pick on other kids that was the best thing they could have done and I thought that was a really neat neat solution yeah yeah so this is going through the 80s I love that solution yeah well, it made sense yeah. did you have a uniform 
Uh, so in primary school, I had a uniform and it was very basic, cotton dress or cotton shorts and cotton shirt. And we had a lot of secondhand uniform programs at our school, which was really good. So like a lot of the time people would buy secondhand uniforms, especially for things like jumpers or things yeah. like that. And then I went to seven to 10, had uniform and it was horrible and I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> I hated it. I hated it. I didn't really hate it in primary school. I didn't care. I was a kid. I was running around. I was playing on monkey bars. Like, who cares? Yeah. But from seven to 10, the uniform just became a way to give me detention. Oh. <laughs> because I was a little rebellious child, perhaps <laughs> we shall say. But things like, you know, where you're a teenager and you're like developing your personality and all that different kind of stuff and things like I wanted to like wear nail polish, dye my hair, or just express myself in my creativity and like who I was becoming. And we had very strict rules. And I just couldn't comprehend them as a, as a teenager. I was like, how does my nail polish affect my studies? In what way? And the teachers didn't like that. So then I went to a, another school, Sandringham College, in year 11 and 12. And I think they have a uniform now. But when I went there and for years before I went there, they didn't have uniform just in their year 11 and 12 campus. Oh. And I think it was great because the year 11 and 12 campus was like a separate campus and it had a very different culture to regular schooling essentially it's almost like half high school half university so they treat you a lot more like an adult it was really great because I completely agree with you about kids being cruel and the no logos is a really smart way to get around it but by the time we were in year 11 and 12, we're older, kids could drive, but everyone's matured a lot more. So there was never really any bad vibes around what anyone was wearing. Everyone could wear what they wanted and stuff, which was great, especially as we're talking about, you know, Australia is very hot. So you can wear the clothing that works for the season, which is not always line up perfectly with the uniform seasons. It was really great that we had free dress because it was just one of the policies they had that was treating us a lot more like adults. We called our teachers by their first names. When we had free periods, we were allowed to leave. We were just allowed to manage our own time. So it was like university as well. You, you could miss a certain number of classes without it being an issue. And then if you miss a certain number of classes, they pull you in and they're like, hey, are you all right? And the really cool thing was they talked to students before they talked to families because sometimes students have a lot going on at home and it's treating them like they're adults. You can solve the problem a lot better if you actually ask the students like what's going on for them. We didn't really have detentions. Like if you did something that was bad, then you would face some sort of consequence, but it would usually be like apologize to the person you wronged or pick up trash, <laughs> which is much more useful than um, a detention. But the cool thing about the uniform that I found was, you know, it's free dress day. Probably you don't because you always had free dress day. <laughs> but if you went to a uniform school, free dress day was like a big deal. Like, what are you going to wear? You got to like flaunt your clothes and look cool for your peers. And so it was like that for like maybe a week when everyone's first started in year 11. And then the cool thing was like everyone got over it and they just like, 
or whatever. Like sometimes people are like, I'm tired, I'm wearing track pants. And so when I went to university, I wasn't like stressed out about all these changes and I wasn't like stressed out about like picking my outfits. I was like, oh, okay, cool. This is like an environment that I'm kind of familiar with and I can really like focus on my studies and not just be worried about like what other university students are thinking about me. Mm. which I found was a very different conversation to people who had gone to the uniform schools and picking the clothes for every day of university was something that a lot of people told me they like got stressed out about when university was starting. Interesting side effect, isn't it? Yeah. There was a whole bunch of kids in my cohort who really wanted a uniform. The idea of having a uniform, it was like a novelty. And today I believe the school does have a uniform, Mm. but I was always dead against it because I didn't want to be exactly like anyone else. I certainly had my opinions at a very young Mm. age, (laughs) even though I had to do metal shop and wood shop. When it did come down to it, I chose home ec, which Mm -hmm. was sewing and catering, but I did sewing. And so that that stood me in great stead because I sewed pretty much all my clothes. I love that. Yeah, it was good fun to get a chance to just be comfortable in the skin you're in. Mm -hmm. I also like the side effect you mentioned about not stressing out at university, not having a big change because you've already been given that responsibility as a developing teenager. And I think also in public schools, it sounds like this happened for you as well, that onus being put on you to complete your work Mm -hmm. rather than if you miss a class then your parents get contacted yeah that didn't happen for us either the onus was on us to do our work we weren't mollycoddled our hands weren't held you had to actually do the work and if you didn't do the work then you didn't get a good mark it was that simple and so by the time you went to university you already had that well this is my responsibility I can't get mum to write me a note and Mm. get out of this this is already my responsibility so that was another side effect I think of having the school culture be very much about personal autonomy Mm. and responsibility and I think that that is something that public schools foster. Mm. I find that something that happens in private schools is they don't want bad marks so Mm. if a kid is getting bad marks they're not going to do anything to fix it they're just going to get rid of the kid which sucks. Yes and that's where the phrase I think your child's educational needs will be best met elsewhere comes in our school had a bit of a bad reputation among all the other schools and I think that was purely because our school took everyone if you got expelled from every other school Glenmore would say you're welcome here but uh, you know the actual culture of the school itself was really community-like do you remember what your school mottos were (laughs) no I don't even know at all Something in Latin, (laughs) couldn't tell you. Our school motto was courtesy, concern, common sense. Oh, that's amazing. I love that. Yeah, so it was about being courteous and being respectful to each other, caring about each other, that the concern, and using common sense. So the onus, again, was on the young adult to be responsible for their behaviour. 
We're going to have a quick break and we'll be back with more dogs after this. Tune in to Uprise Radio every first and third Wednesday of the month at 5.30pm on 3CR. With Jackson and James, we're bringing you the in-depth analysis of what's happening in the world all in just 30 minutes. You can listen live to air or you can find us on demand. 3cr.org.au. Stay tuned. Well, it's that time of year, folks, and everybody is getting ready for the holiday season. They're going to catch up with their friends and family, maybe just take a break from, from work, from doing what they have to do and this sometimes at school uh, teachers and kids so from everyone here at the council for defensive government schools we'd like to wish you all a very happy holiday season hope it's a great one for you and just remember that we all have to come back next year and let's hope that public education benefits Welcome back to the Dogs Program, the Defence of Government Schools Program. Now let's go back into this chat that we're having about our respective state school experiences. So did you have any teachers that you like really connected with? Yes, absolutely. I would hope it's true for a lot of people who've got this lifelong love of learning. There are teachers that I to this day can look back and say it was their support Mm -hmm. that enabled me and emboldened me to move forward in certain subjects. One subject that you could do as an elective as a senior was film and television. And we had a film and TV teacher, Miss Edwards. She let me call her Gabrielle. She was fantastic and she supported me in everything I did. Even to the point where if I couldn't make it to an exhibition, she'd arrange with mum and dad to come and pick me up. That's like the extra mile. That's the public school teacher going the extra mile out of their own pocket. And also there was an art teacher that I used to butt heads with. (laughs) I still really love and respect Mr Gunn. He was very abrasive but in a way that would show you how much he thought of you so I was playing professional basketball at the time as a teenager we were getting flown around the state I was playing in state league so one weekend I'm not going to school on Friday because we're getting flown up to Townsville to play and he said to me you're missing a lot of art classes Mm. and uh, he said whenever you miss the Friday class you don't get to see what we're doing in the class you can pick it up the next week from someone or whatever but you don't get to be there while we're explaining it I always excelled at art at school and he said do you want to be a professional basketball player is that your passion is that what you want to do and I was like well no I absolutely (laughs) don't yeah and I said no no even though I was playing state league I I was never very good at it because um, I was never aggressive enough you know (laughs) because I just didn't care I'm not competitive enough. And and Mr. Gunn did point out to me that if that's not what you want to do with your life, then you're missing out on these opportunities at school to have that instruction from teachers. And that's frustrating. That inspired me to take school a bit more seriously in that 
instead of taking the day off because I was flying out that night, I'd prepare all my stuff the day before and I'd go to school and I'd make sure that I got to the class on time. And I got 100% in art and it was purely because Mr Gunn did take me aside and ask me to sort of look at my motivation behind why I was or was not coming to school and what opportunities I was missing out on by not taking it that seriously. So yeah, even though we had an abrasive relationship, I'll always appreciate that moment where he, he took the time to let me know that there's opportunity here that he didn't want me to miss out on and then regret later on. What about you? Do you have any favourite teachers? I have one teacher. So I was a very neurodivergent child, but no one really knew that. Uh, I didn't get diagnosed till I was an adult. So I didn't have the best relationship with like 90% of the teachers that I had. (laughs) But I had one teacher in grade two um, named Mrs. Lundgren and she was amazing. She was so nice and she really just like understood me and understood that kids all learn in different ways. And she was just really kind and she said to my mom, this is just the kind of kid that Sorrel is. They're just going to be like this, that they're just like a person who is like, you know, going to do their homework surrounded by mess with the music turned up really loud and, and still do the homework to a great standard. And that's me as an adult still. Um, my desk <laughs> right now is still messy. I still listen to music when I'm doing my assignments. But it was really nice to have a teacher who saw that I was an intelligent kid who was worth putting effort into and didn't just try and cram me into this little box that I really did not fit into. (laughs) So she was amazing. Unfortunately, she is no longer with us, but so many of her former students attended her funeral, which I think that just really goes to show the impact that she had. During our discussion, Sorrel mentioned the challenges faced by neurodivergent children and Jeff has come up with an article on just such a thing. There is a recognition these days that children not only learn in very different ways, but their brains work in very different ways. There's no one-size-fits-all solution. So I'm going to pass you over to Jeff for this article on neurodivergent children and education. Dale, and with school enrolments coming up, I thought it might be important to highlight another aspect of education that is often left alone. Um, Going back to an article posted originally on the ABC News um, by Catherine Gregory on the 1st of June 23, and it's concerns that some schools are contravening disability legislation by not accepting neurodiverse children. She says... Sydney mother Yana Hunt is worried she won't be able to find the right school for her four-year-old son Harrison to start the next year. She said it had been challenging because he'd been diagnosed with autism and oppositional defiant disorder and he was also highly intelligent. intelligent. I'm waking up in the middle of the night so stressed, Mrs Hunt said. She said she was upfront about Harrison's diagnosis when she started the enrolment process with two private schools last year. One of them didn't get back to her about the enrolment, while Ms Hunt said the other school was intentionally welcoming, but after a lengthy process told the family the school couldn't take Harrison. 
they said that we had to engage with an ASPECT, Aspect School, which is a very high-needs school for children with disabilities, Mrs Hunt said. And they said we need to go through the public system and get into a support class. It's a bit of a process, which we're in the middle of now. When I asked about enrolling him on the waitlist, they said to me, we wouldn't want you to waste your money. Ms Hunt explained that she suggested public school had limited placements for children like Harrison and the local Catholic school would, would accept him but couldn't offer much in the way of support. So Ms Hunt was worried about that her son, like many other neurodiverse children, is falling through the cracks of the education system where he doesn't fit in at a special needs school but the mainstream schools are proving, proving hard to get into as well. Gatekeeping is all too common. The private school that didn't respond to Ms Hunt's attempts to enrol Harrison did respond to questions from the ABC. It conceded there was an administrative error during the enrolment process last year and has since apologised to the family and says it'll now put Harrison on a wait list to start next year. The other private school told ABC that it welcomed and supported neurodiverse children but would sometimes advise that the child was better off getting therapeutic interventions elsewhere first instead of starting formal learning at the school. Linda Graham from the Centre for Inclusive Education at the Queensland University of Technology said these responses from schools were all too common and it shouldn't be happening. It's not just the elite privates but the public schools as well, Professor Graham said. She calls it gatekeeping, where a school says no to enrolling a child, often for very subtle reasons, and suggests they're better placed elsewhere. Professor Graham points out that aspect schools aren't necessarily the right environment for children like Harrison, who are on the spectrum. It's quite possible to educate everyone successfully, but we have to change how we do things, she said. She said all schools, including private ones, received additional federal government funding for students who had special needs or were neurodiverse. There should be no government funding going to a school that picks and chooses in that way and says, no, we're not going to abide by national legislation, Professor Graham said. Professor Graham's referring to the disability discrimination legislation, she said. She knew many of the families who had tried to take on schools using it. Professor Graham's referring to the disability discrimination legislation. She said she knew of many families who had tried to take on schools using it but a lot of the time they will withdraw their complaint either to the Australian Human Rights Commissioner or to other state-based commissions because they're faced with such enormous financial costs, Professor, Professor Graham said. Every child has a right to a public education. The Human Rights Commission received more than 120 complaints related to discrimination in, in education in the 21-22 financial year and refused to enrol students uh, and refusal to enrol students makes up a proportion of that number. The New South Wales Education Department said both government and non-government schools must adhere to the discrimination legislation, although it has no power over private schools' enrolment processes. It also said that every child had a right to be educated in their local public school. The Federal Education Department gave a similar response and added that all schools must provide reasonable adjustments for school students with disability. Family Advocacy, which represents people and families with disability, said it often advocated for them when schools were gatekeeping or keeping special needs children off the enrolment books. Executive Officer Cecily Sullivan, Elder, said the Education Department did push back strongly and try to stop it, but there's a long way to go. Ms Elder agreed that by saying no to neurodiverse students, schools were contravening the discrimination and human rights legislation. 
we do believe that every child, regardless of their complexities and disabilities, should have access to their local school or school of choice, if we're talking about a private school, she said. There will be many types of students that will fall between the gaps, and so that transformative change is needed in how we do education in this country. That's a really good article, I think, and important to note the difficulties that uh, students and parents of neurodiverse children strike again and again. Speaking as a parent of a neurodiverse child, we had a lot of difficulty not only with the primary school that our son was in, but also with the the parents who avoided uh, other parents who have children with um, complex uh, neurodiverse backgrounds. Um, often the parents themselves feel isolated as well by other parents. Um, and so I can personally uh, claim that um, parents with neurodiverse children face as many challenges as their children do, and especially in getting things to happen more quickly and in much better resourced um, responses from the schools to uh, neurodiverse children. Anyway, with that, back to you, Dale. Thanks so much for that, Jeff. Now we'll have a quick break and we'll be right back with more dogs after this. I'd like to wish everyone a happy New Year's from the dogs. And if everyone could get their New Year's resolution into pressuring their local politicians to vote to fund public schools at 100% of their SRS, we would have a fantastic 2024. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card, and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe Welcome back. You're listening to The Dogs on 3CR, the Defence of Government Schools program. Now we'll go back to the chat that we were having about our state school experiences. This time focusing on facilities and fundraising, which is a huge part of being part of a state school community. We are talking about our public school experiences and I'm wondering what your school's facilities and resources were like. Mm. So it's funny that you asked me that just after I talked about Mrs Lundgren because when I had her in year two and we talked about the ICSIA value, like BlackRock Primary School currently has a pretty high ICSIA value. And I think it would have back when I went there as well. Like I remember a lot of other kids having parents that were quite wealthy, but still I did grade two in a portable classroom. Explain to the listeners what a portable is, just in case they don't know the joys of the portable. (laughs) So a portable classroom is um, like a small individual classroom 
that is basically built to be able to be transported on the back of a truck. It's commonly the same type of building as they would have an office in, in a building site. You can kind of imagine that. Okay. What we would call portables were basically tin sheds. Okay, so the portables had evolved a little bit from (laughs) but they were still bad, especially because they didn't have air conditioning. When I talk to some of my American friends, they're like, oh, yeah, but you guys will have air conditioning in Australia. And I'm like, no, so much of my primary school was not in air conditioning. So much of my high school was not in air conditioning. We would have class in this portable, very hot. (laughs) And I remember when it would get over a certain um, temperature, then they would legally have to send us home because they couldn't air conditioning. It was just like trying to teach a bunch of like seven-year-olds in 45 degree heat. No. That's interesting about that mandatory got to send the kids home at a certain Mm -hmm. temperature. They would wait till it hit that exact temperature. So I think for us it was 40 degrees. And so this is in central Queensland. Rockhampton's right on the Tropic of Capricorn. So it is sweltering and humid. And we're in these tin sheds and there was a fan in the roof. Oh, yeah, the ceiling fan. That's like so ineffective. (laughs) Blow hot air around. But, yeah, like the thermometer would be at 39.99 degrees, but we weren't allowed to go home until it hit 40. (laughs) And trying to teach kids in that environment, it's not optimal. No. But, yeah, a lot of my primary and high schools had portable classrooms or or demountables but there were actual blocks we used to call them and they were actually brick buildings but they weren't air conditioned there was no air conditioning at all in any part of our school the first high school i went to definitely was considerably better funded but even in the more well-off high school there were still portable classrooms And what was especially grievous was in year 11 and 12, when I went to Sandringham College, I'm pretty sure it's different now, but when I went there, the gym was a portable classroom. It was so bad. It was literally a portable classroom with carpet on the floor and just weights. And people were doing sport as a year 12 subject. And they just had to do their gym classes in a rundown portable classroom or in an outdoor basketball court with asphalt. All the lines they've been painted over, like faded a million times. Yeah. No air conditioning, obviously, no air conditioning. <laughs> We didn't have a gym. Everything was on the mm. oval. So we've, we've done one step up with a portable classroom, but you guys didn't even have a gym. No, we had an oval and some basketball courts. Is this a feature of your public school experience too? There was always fundraising? Yes, there was a lot of fundraising. Yeah, and that us kids did the fundraising. So us kids wanted a pool. We dead set wanted a pool. We wanted to swim and other schools had pools, but our school just couldn't afford it. So we did some heavy, heavy duty fundraising. And this would include what we used to call pole sits. Do you know what a pole sit is? No. Okay, so it's kind of like scaffolding. We'd get scaffolding that was maybe 
a story high or two stories high and up the top would be an area to stay so we would do a 48 hour pole sit (laughs) at the local 24 hour service station Mm. (laughs) and us kids would staff the pole sit ourselves Mm. there was some teacher supervision but mainly we supervised ourselves because it was our fundraising effort and people would come in to get their petrol josephine was one of the main people she got an award for fundraising actually it was her pole sit one year that (laughs) we did and she had to stay up there for 48 hours and only come down to go to the toilet so she slept up there yeah yeah that was the whole point of it that's why us kids would be there we'd take it in shifts 24 hours you know (laughs) Um, and every time someone come and get petrol we'd go up to the car and say hi we're from Glenmore High we're doing fundraising (laughs) for our school Josephine's staying up on the poles for 48 hours any donations to help us raise money for our school would be greatly appreciated to complete strangers just coming to get their petrol (laughs) and we raised enough money to to get a pool. Oh, did you get the pool? We did. We That's did. amazing. Yeah, but unfortunately, by the time it got done, our schooling was over. Our breakup day, graduation day, we spent in the pool. Amazing. <laughs> we finally got to use the fruits of our labour. I remember fundraising was just a part of school life. Like all through primary school, we had fates, but we also had icy cups. It was just taken for granted that it was all about raising money for the school. Mm. That is just such an integral part of state school life that we did not think anything of it. And to think about it today, kids doing fundraising like that from such a young age, I think maybe that also is what gave us that sense of autonomy as well Mm -hmm. and the sense of being responsible for our school community and being responsible Mm. for each other. Did you have um, working bees as well as fates? Because I also remember working bees. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's where the parents and the school yeah. community would come in. Yeah. My primary school had the best fates though. Like I don't know why, but we went so hard. But they had a twilight fate and it was the best. I just remember it being so cool because it was twilight. And so you're a kid and you're like, oh, it's a little bit dark. And to yeah. you, that's like the coolest thing in the world. But really, it's like 7pm when you're in your primary yeah. school. I just remember the Twilight Fate being so cool. And they made the teachers, I think, and maybe some of the older kids. And they made the hall. We had like a big hall. And they did this really cool haunted house. And it was like scary. I don't even know how they did it, but it was like this long building and they transformed it. So all, it was like they created little sections and they had the older kids like dressed up or spooky mm-hmm. and they would like take you through and the kid would be like, ah, oh, we have to run away. And, we'd, and we had to like run out of the window and like onto like this mat and we would like run away from the kid chasing us. And I just, <laughs> and it's a classroom. It was a hall. They just used what they had and converted it and used, you know, like cold spaghetti to be like spooky <laughs> brains or whatever. And, yeah. But as a kid, it was the coolest thing ever. It was way cooler than any haunted house I'd like ever been in my life. Like I'm 31 and I still remember how cool <laughs> it was. I remember one year at our fate, we had a dunking pool. Oh my God, I love it. And that. that made so much money because 
all the teachers volunteered to be dunked. Oh, my God, I love that. I would have paid to dunk a teacher for sure. Oh, mate, <laughs> it was the biggest moneymaker. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, all of the teachers volunteered to to sit up on the ball and let us little brats throw the ball to hit the target and then splush, they'd be in the pool. But, of course, why wouldn't you want to get dunked? It's yeah. like 40 degrees, you know. <laughs> yeah, and you're, and you're raising money for your school. Like, that sounds yeah. perfect. It's win, win, win. <laughs> you know? So we'll take a step away from the chat Sorrel and I were having on our state school experiences because Jeff has an article that talks a bit more about how successful state schools have been doing with their NAPLAN results this year. Over to you, Jeff. Thanks, Dale. And it appears that somehow the message is starting to filter through to the mainstream. Um, there's an article in The Age on the 18th of December, 23, by Robin Grace and Sharon Gok, Grok. That's an update. And it's top NAPLAN schools earn half their private peers per student. The article goes, Victoria's top state schools are keeping pace with their private competitors despite receiving less than half their income per student. Analysis by The Age using the top 20 average year 9 NAPLAN results for public and private schools shows the best-performing independent schools school received an average of $30,109 per student in 2022, compared to an average of $16,480 earned by state schools. State schools are predominantly funded by the state government, while independent schools earn income through fees. Now there's a table, and I won't go through the whole thing, but the four top-performing schools are actually public schools, Melbourne High School, McGrob Girls High, Nossel High School and Susan Corey. And then there's a selection of mixture of uh, public and private schools. But the, 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 the article goes on, the total net recurrent income in 2022 for the top performing private schools is more than $850 million, compared to less than half that, $413 million for the public schools. Victoria's four selective state high schools all achieved better averages in Year 9 NAPLAN testing than their private school peers, pulling scores from 704.4 to 684.8, despite receiving a maximum of $16,982 per student. By comparison, the best private school was Presbyterian Ladies College, which achieved a NAPLAN Year 9 average of 671.2 after receiving $38,050 per student in 2022. Glen Waverley Secondary College was the next best public performer with a Year 9 NAPLAN average of 626 and an income per student of 14464 Victorian College of the Arts was the only public school making more than $20,000 per student with an income of 27644 and an NAPLAN average of 608 Lighthouse Christian College in Cranbourne made the least of the independent high performers with an income per student of 15830 and an average score of 639 on NAPLAN. VCE high performer Ballarat Clarendon College also came under the 20000 threshold earning $17,057 per student, but achieving a NAPLAN average of 666, the second highest for private schools in the state. Net recurrent income for 2022 was released along with the 2023 NAPLAN results on the MySchool website on Friday morning. It includes state and federal funding, as well as fees, charges and parent contributions and other private sources. A decade on from the Gonski Review, 
more than 98% of public schools are still funded below the schooling resource standard it recommended, while 98% of private schools are funded above it. Government funding for private schools has grown almost twice as much as public school funding in that time. Analysis of the latest international PISA results show that when adjusted for socio-economic status, public schools outperform both the private and Catholic sectors. Economist Trevor Cobalt from Funding Equity Advocate uh, Save Our Schools said it was outstanding that public schools with less than half the income of many private schools had achieved comparable or better NAPLAN results. It has to be asked just what private schools are doing with their highly privileged income, he said. It appears too much is being spent on the arms race in gold-plated facilities such as well-being centres, ornate libraries, more swimming pools and ovals, buying up properties and exorbitant salary packages for principals. None of this appears to be better educating their students. More often it appears to engender a sense of entitlement. Economist Adam Rorris whose recent study found Australia's private schools are overfunded by $800 million this year, while public schools go underfunded by $4.5 billion, said more equitable funding would have the biggest impact on the state schools serving the poorest communities. Roris said public school systems spent more money where it was academically needed. Schools serving poorer communities typically received more funding per student than others, simply because it needed to get results. Private schools were the opposite, he said, with schools serving the most advantaged communities getting the most funding. They are the last schools to which you, should, you would, to which you would, as a matter of good public policy, divert precious resources, he said. That is, assuming you are interested in value for money and balanced learning outcomes across society. Roris said, as communities gained more confidence in the capacity of public schools to deliver good quality education, they would become more representative of the communities they served. In middle and upper class communities, that would probably organically translate into higher average scores. Elite private schools can hardly spend the money they collect from government, parents and the old boy and old girl networks. Most run surpluses every year that often run into the millions, he said. Elite private schools exist to segregate children based on wealth and privilege as much as to educate. They are very good at the former and demonstrably inefficient at the later. What an excellent article and um, the dogs are so happy that the um, mainstream media is starting to pick this theme up. Anyway, with that, I'm going to pass back to you, Doug. Thank you very much for that, Jeff. We'll have a quick break and then we'll be back with more dogs right after this. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Hi, this is Andy from The Dogs Programme. Here's hoping that the New Year's resolutions of our politicians includes commitment to education for all and not just the rich. Let's take the money away from the private schools and put it in the public system so that we can all benefit. Teachers have had 
had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's still not good enough that kids with disability miss out. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Welcome back to The Dogs Program, the defence of government schools. I'd like to say a massive thank you to all of the teachers in public schools who have been going through so much, who've been working so hard. Sorrel and I have been chatting today about our public school experiences and something that has been a through line for both of us has been just how the teachers went above and beyond. If the resources weren't there for the schools, the teachers would themselves go be out of pocket just to provide those resources for our hungry little minds. The hard work that the teachers put in, that public school teachers going above and beyond, they really, really, really deserve to be paid for their hard work and to be paid well. They deserve to be respected more for their hard work. I want you public school teachers to know that you are valued, you are beloved. We appreciate all of your efforts. If it's possible for you to keep going with the same verve, with the same passion and keep inspiring little minds for another year, please do. I know it's incredibly hard out there at the moment, but you are so important to so many of us and so many of us who came from places where there were no resources, where there was no money, you provided enrichment for our lives. To this day, I can say that I'm honestly grateful to every single one of the teachers who showed their support and inspired me to love learning. We are coming towards the end of the program, but I thought it would be nice if we listened to a little bit of music. Here's Scola Cantorum with Laudate Dominum.
in there you heard the beautiful voice of the late great Robert Ely who we miss terribly. I hope you've enjoyed today's special episode of the Dogs Program. I thought it might be nice to mix it up a little because throughout the year we talk about NAPLAN and PISA, education funding policy and we are incredibly grateful to everyone who does such important research and such important work. So I'd like to say a big thank you to everyone from the AEU to Save Our Schools and Trevor Cobalt and just about everyone who's been fighting to promote and defend public education. We are the Defence of Government Schools Program. As always, you can find out more about us by going to our website at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. And we hope that you'll join us for another year of fighting for public education in 2024. Until next year, it's bye for now. I dreamed I saw Joe here last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, here ten years dead, I never died, says he, I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe, says I, him standing by my bed, they framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I did, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. Says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill went on to organize. Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you find your hill It's there you find
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.